Hello again, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oral Valley Catholic, and we're in the second Sunday of Lent. What I would like to talk about today in regard to the gospel in the first reading from the book of Genesis is the underlying human experiences of both happiness in life and meaning in life. You know, last week um, I talked about happiness as being this relationship between what you want and what you have. So if you take what you have as the numerator, what you want as the denominator, and you resolve that equation, you're going to get something that indicates your level of happiness. And so if you always want more than what you have, there will always be a lack of satisfaction and contentment in your life. On the other hand, if your wants are less than your needs, you're much more likely to be happy. But happiness and meaning in life do not equate. And so in this podcast, I'd like to talk about our memories, our presence, our hopes for the future, the relationship between happiness and meaning in life, and how this plays out in the gospel. So stay tuned for more. The pagan philosopher Aristotle and his teacher Plato both talked about happiness, but their concept of happiness does not equate to, I think, how most Americans think about happiness. When we think about happiness, I think we reduce it simply uh, to an emotion of contentment or satisfaction in our life, something like pleasure. But for the Greeks, especially Plato and Aristotle, the word they used for happiness was eudaimonia. And eudaimonia is really about a flourishing self, a fullness of life. Uh, it doesn't simply reduce to what you have. It's something that for Aristotle it involved, in the fullest sense, the contemplative life, these spiritual values. Uh, so for Christians, happiness is more than just physical contentment. It is this experience of the living God. But in the present, our emotional experience of happiness does not necessarily equate with meaning in life. First, let me describe the kind of the basis for happiness. And I'm relying on Arthur C. Brooks, who is a professor of uh, sociology at, at Harvard University, who writes quite a lot on happiness. And what he said is that there are three component parts to our subjective feelings of happiness. He says that most medical research indicates that about 50% of it is just our genes. We're just born to be uh, happy people or cranky people. And I think anyone who's raised kids recognize that kids have these kind of personality orientations that open them uh, more to happiness, or maybe being more critical and dissatisfied with life. The medievals and the ancients had these different, what they called humors, like the choleric uh, humor, which was like a, a personality orientation uh, towards life. And so the idea that there's just something that is inherent in every human being that affects happiness has been widely recognized, I think, over the ages. But the other half, can be circumstances. And circumstances in life are changeable. You have someone you love die, my friend, you're gonna be sorry. 
you're going to be sad. You're going to have a deep sense of loss. If, on the other hand, you marry the person that you think is the love of your life and that you get to spend your life with that person, your happiness may go through the roof because circumstances do affect our happiness, but they're changeable. And the circumstances kind of come and go. Um, People get over death mostly. In marriage, boy, as people age together and they change, how they think about marriage changes. These circumstances that once were a great source of joy becomes, you know, this profound experience of change and growth and building um, a life together. But circumstances, part of circumstances, are habits. And habits really fall into um, a, a few categories to think about as you look at it as part of the happiness portfolio that you can control. You really can't control uh, whether people die or not. You may not be completely in control whether people are born or not, what happens to you at work, all of these circumstances. But there are four aspects of your happiness portfolio that you can have a, a real impact on. So think about this as the investment portfolio that is not subject to the stock market. Happiness includes your relationship with your family, plus your relationship with your friends, plus your relationship at work, plus your faith. Because faith really organizes how you see meaning and purpose in marriage and family, what joy you take out of friends, and the value as it is of what your work is, as sanctifying work is, as uh, we talk about it in the Catholic faith. So family, friends, work, and faith. You know, about this sense of balance between family, friends, and work, very important, but faith really permeates each of those uh, categories. How important how we think about faith affects our happiness. But once you're talking about faith, what your ultimate sense of purpose and meaning in life is, you are talking about the role that meaning plays in happiness. Now, happiness and meaning in life, my identity, where I come from, who I am, where I'm going to, what the future holds for me, what's the role of what my future hopes are in my present choices, how does my past affect my present, memory, present, future, These are the portfolio, if you will, of meaning and purpose in life. So think about it in a sense, memory and relationship is a huge part of happiness, but it's also a huge part of meaning and purpose in life. So happiness and meaning in life can overlap but they're not identical concepts. Well, consider how you think about flourishing in life or the emotion of happiness. Um, Satisfying a need, maybe um, a new birth in the family, um, uh, having a wonderful dinner with friends, uh, a promotion at work. Your happiness can go up, but it probably doesn't change how you think about meaning and purpose in life. Those change in circumstances as to happiness are are much more relevant 
uh, to my feeling and my sense of whether my life is is uh, where it should be, this fullness of life, but where it goes to, what it means in my life, that's, you know, the, the, those kinds of things aren't exactly the same. You have a new baby uh, in your life, and let's say you're a Catholic and you hope for heaven. You want to baptize them. You want to go to heaven. You want them to go to heaven. Then at 25, they start making their own decisions, or at 19 or 16, whatever it is. And you start to worry about what the future is for them. So happiness and meaning is this complicated relationship. And that brings up the issue of the cross and suffering. Boy, suffering comes into your life. Happiness level can go down. But the meaning and purpose level goes way up. You got to get up in the middle of the night to feed a child. There's meaning in that, but you may not be very happy. Being at the bedside of a dying parent or a dying spouse or suffering the death of a child or a close friend, you know, happiness level goes down, but meaning and purpose can uh, go up, be enhanced, because you begin to rely on this greater sense of what life is than something that, you know, just the present world can fill. So meaning and purpose really about identity for the Catholic, who I am to God, who I am in my family, the role I play in my life. Meaning and purpose is always about the past. It's the scriptural past. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of the Old Testament. It's how your mom and dad brought you up. It's your experience of Catholic priests. These are all part of our memory. In the present, it's maybe how well your parish functions. What you think of going on, of what's going on in the church, how Catholics talk about the Pope, rally to his defense or attack him, uh, which are both things that are being experienced in the present. And this sense of hope that God is calling us to himself and that you know in your heart of hearts that somehow this is going to where God wants it to go. But how the heck you get there, that's a different question. And so let's take time and look at the Gospels today about Abram uh, who meets God and uh, has a covenant with God. And then Peter, James, and John who encountered Jesus, Elijah, and Moses on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. And then bring it all together with some wonderful reflection from St. Augustine on memory and purpose in life. So let's move on to the Gospel. What I believe is that the Catholic faith is the complete and whole religion that explains all religion of whatever nature it is. It is the complete fulfillment of the promises of God to Abram and the people of, of Israel and that God's kingdom has a place for Catholic, Christian, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, and everybody of every religion that the redemptive work of Christ fulfills the destruction of the temple and making a new temple, the end of the priesthood in Israel, and Jesus is the, the priest, God provides the priest, and Jesus becomes the man in the desert in the Eucharist. Um, obviously, these themes are developed throughout this podcast, but it really comes back to this reading about covenant, that God made a promise with 
Abraham and his descendants that is valid to the very present moment and until the end of time. And it's here in Genesis 15, and let me read it to you. The Lord God took Abram outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. Just so, he added, shall your descendants be. Abram put his faith in the Lord, who credited it to him as an act of righteousness. So Abram is in right relationship with God, but he hasn't been baptized. He then said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from your the Chaldeans to give you this land as a possession. O Lord God, he asked, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He answered him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old she-goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abram brought him all these, split them in two, and placed each half opposite the other. But the birds he did not cut up. Birds of prey swooped down on the carcasses, but Abram stayed with them. And as the sun was about to set, a trance fell upon Abram, and a deep, terrifying darkness enveloped him. And when the sun had set, and it was dark, there appeared a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, which passed between those pieces. It was on that occasion that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. So think about Genesis chapter 15 and the parts about it, especially when it comes to the component parts of meaning and purpose. Why the Jewish people and the Christian people find such meaning in this story. First, at the heart of it, as St. Paul points out in Romans, is Brahms put his faith in the Lord. In Romans, and we had this last week, Pistis, trusting Jesus as teacher, trusting Jesus as guide. It's being faithful to his example and following him. And because Abram believes that God will be faithful, Abram is faithful. And this is what right relationship looks like. When the word righteousness is used, read, this is what it means to be a human being, to rightly relate to God and to one another. And then think about the component parts of this whole interchange between God and Abram. First, it's about the past. Because remember, God called Abram from Ur of the Chaldees, which is in Mesopotamia, modern Iraq. Ur is actually an archaeological site. The city actually existed in the land of the Chaldeans, which we think of as Iraq. And so he says, I'm the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as possession. Remember who I am. That's what he's saying to Abram. And then the second part is, is this covenant. A contract can be about stuff, things. A covenant, like in marriage, is about a relationship between persons, who you are to God, who God is to you. That is why God says to Moses in the burning bush in, in uh, Exodus chapter 3, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's this personal God in personal relationship. But at the heart of the present experience of God for Abram is sacrifice. Something has to be given up for something better. Sacrifice is giving up something good for something better. And so there is the sacrifice which is laid out, which was described in the reading. And then what happens? It's about the future. The sunset, it's dark. Is the covenant threatened? And what happens in the dark? Then where the covenant, the sacrifice that makes the covenants laid out, a fire pot and a flaming torch appear and pass 
through the severed pieces of the, of the sacrifice, God's acceptance of the sacrifice, and then the covenant. I will give you this land, the future, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. So if you think about it like that, this is the template for what covenant is. For Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, here's the reading. Jesus took Peter, John, and James and went up the mountain to pray. While he was praying, his face changed in appearance and his clothing became dazzlingly white. And behold, two men were conversing with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And you remember the rest. His clothes become dazzling white. Peter wants to erect these booths for him. But Jesus um, says they're going to have to go back down the mountain and he's going to have to suffer and die. But think about this passage I just read. In the present, Peter, James, and John are witnessing this transfiguration of Jesus. What's present? Well, the past. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And so all of this promise and suffering of Israel, going back to Abram and that first reading, will be satisfied, will be fulfilled. And then in the future, Moses and Elijah, Moses who's been through the Exodus, spoke to Jesus about his upcoming Exodus from Jerusalem, which will happen in uh, his ascension after his resurrection. And then think about the present where Peter is trying to fit what's happening on this mountain into the Jewish feast of booths or tabernacles, which was a fall like um, harvest festival that in some uh, rabbinic sources is the forerunner of the great messianic banquet. Um, but then what happens? Then here, let me read it. He didn't know what he was saying, but while he was still speaking, a cloud came and cast a shadow over them and they became frightened when they entered the cloud. And then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my chosen son, listen to him. And after the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They fell silent and did not at that time tell anyone what they had seen. Well, remember the cloud. Remember that the cloud is the glory cloud that comes down on Mount Sinai when Moses receives the law. It's the glory cloud that comes down into the temple when Solomon consecrates the temple. It's the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit that comes upon our Blessed Lady when she receives Gabriel. It's the cloud that takes Jesus up into heaven at the ascension. This cloud is a symbol, uh, probably a physical manifestation of the appearance of the Holy Spirit. The voice, God the Father, identifying the Son in whom he is well pleased and on whom his favor rests. And then the presence of Jesus, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so memory, meaning and purpose, comes to us because we have this promise from God. In the present, we can see the suffering and the sacrifice, like with Abram and his sacrifice, or with Peter, James, and John, who are walking with Jesus through his sacrifice on Calvary with the promise of what will happen in the future. So is everything about that story happy? 
Well, not in the usual sense of the term. Is everything about this story and what it means to us deeply meaningful and profound for who we are to God, a beloved son? Oh boy, it's off the meaning chart. And so let's take a moment and conclude this podcast by talking about St. Augustine and his book, The Confession. Meaning and purpose in life is directly related to memory or experience of the present and as it's understood through our remembered experience, religious and personal experience, and our hopes for the future. It's related to overlapping with happiness, but not identical with happiness. People can seek pleasure in life and what makes them happy for the next 15 minutes and have no sense of meaning or purpose in life. You can have a profound sense of meaning and purpose in life that this world, these, this understanding has made me this kind of person and my hopes for the future are. And you can be going through misery but have intense meaning and purpose in your life. And this is the book of Confessions, the Confessions by St. Augustine, which is a terrific read for Lent if you're up for it. It's the story of St. Augustine's conversion to the Catholic faith. St. Augustine was proclaimed bishop of Hippo, elected by the people, and he felt like he needed to explain himself uh, to people who just didn't trust him because they knew the Augustine of Thagosti, who was pretty spoiled and was a maniche, which really equates to what we think of as New Age religion, this kind of weird um, religious idea made up by a man named Mani that came from the East. But Augustine was kind of a nominal member in it. He never married, but had a concubine, couldn't marry her because they were of different social classes, but he had a son with her. Um, he had a, a life that had quite a lot of success. He ended up working in the imperial court up in Milan but it didn't seem that he was taking a lot of happiness out of it. He met St. Ambrose, a real example of holiness, converted to the Catholic faith. And in all of that story that I just described, he talks about the loss of his friend. He talks about having sadly to send his concubine away after he converts to the Catholic faith. His son is with him when he converts to the faith, and I think his son becomes a Catholic too, but then his little boy dies, his mom dies, um, another close friend dies. His story in the Confessions is a story of worldly accomplishment, lots of pleasure, but also lots of pain. It really is a very modern human story. But how does he come to this understanding in the Confessions of where he is in his life and what he hopes to accomplish. Well, it's all about his memory. And that's what chapter 10 of the Confessions is about. It's about how our pasts bring meaning into our present and are the fuel for our hopes in the future. One quote from the Confessions, which is justly famous, illustrates this, this insight of Augustine. Late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new, Late have I loved you, and see, you were within, and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. 
You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you, though if they did not have their existence in you, they have no existence at all. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew in my breath. And now pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. What great imagery. I mean, God was inside him, but Augustine was locked up in the outside world. So what's he describing? This internal process of how we integrate our past, our present, and our future. And so in chapter 10 in memory, he talks about that. He talks about the role of memory in telling a story. Like when you tell your story about how you got to the present moment, how close to your memories do you really think with what actually happened when you were eight years old? When Augustine talks about his clashes with his dad or running away from his mom, he just has a few stories about these things that have stuck in his memory for some reason. Are they there because God wants him to focus on these? Because looking back, he finds much more meaning in those events in his life. Uh, his struggles with his mom and dad, his concubine, his work in the court, his teaching, his rhetoric. He finds more meaning in them now as a man who's assuming the duties of bishop, the Bishop of Hippo than he did when he was a young man. When you look at your life, how much has the wisdom and experience you've attained through your years changed how you think about being a kid? So Augustine talks about remembrance. He says, I can remember the difference between the taste of honey and grape juice. I know that when I taste them, but I don't actually have the taste. I can remember the sky, the beauty of the earth, the wonderful sea, though I'm not near any of them. I could be in a closed room. I can remember uh, pain, experience of emotional pain. I might have a twinge. An experience of physical pain, I don't really feel the pain anymore. I can count, I can store countless mathematical, philosophical, literary, and historical truths in my mind, remembrances of the people I loved, but they're there in my head. The brain and memory and how it affects our present, this is a mystery to Augustine. Think about Lent. You and Lent, we choose a first reading that is always something out of salvation history. And so this week it's the story of the covenant, right? Um, with, uh, with Abron and God, which is the beginning of the chosen people. And so it's about a recounted communal memory that gives meaning to who Israel is in the present why they're in the land where they are, which was promised to them by God, what role they play in the world, in our worries, our hopes, and our fears, but also the role of the church, that in the demise of the temple, a new temple is erected as for the whole world in the person of Christ. In the demise of a sacrificing priesthood, we say that it's fulfilled in, in Christ, who sa whose sacrifice is made present on the cross and whose work as a priest is present at the altar. The Jewish people, at least some of them, 
hope that someday they'll rebuild a, a temple. And apparently some people believe they'll restart animal sacrifices. And I ask, would it really have meaning after it's been gone for 2,000 years? I suppose a believer would have to uh, express that truth for themselves. And if it had meaning to them, then how does that really tie into God's meaning and purpose for the world? Because he sent his son and the gospel's been taken out to the whole world. Friends, it is a mystery. And when you're in the presence of mystery, you just let God's will unfold according to how his people react to his word. But the thing about Augustine is the role of suffering in his life. It's about struggle and pain. So here's what I want you to think about during Lent. You know, when we pray, we like to think about the positive things. We like happiness. We want to be happy. But this chasing after happiness in the external world when St. Augustine installed is a cruel slavery. Freedom comes because you also deal with the negative emotions that are primary emotions in our lives. Disgust, contempt, anger, wrath, fear, uncertainty. All of these things are also how God talks to us. Like Abram, as the sun went down, and nobody, God had not appeared near the sacrifice, but it was in the dark that the flaming pot and the flaming torch became present. It's in Jesus' uh, transfiguration on the mountain where he's transfigured before a very fearful Peter, James, and John as a cloud blots out the world around them. But meaning and purpose, God's presence in the dark, Fyodor Dostoevsky said, on the darkest nights, the lights shine the brightest because it's in suffering that we know our true dependence on God. So if you feel lonely, if you're suffering this Lent, look to the example of the cross. Contemplate, examine, and pray about your bad feelings. Ask what meaning and purpose they might have in your life. Be unafraid to embrace the full range of human experience. You know, Suffering, according to St. Paul, produces character. Character gives us endurance, and endurance leads us into righteousness. So here's some practical mindsets this Lent as you think about suffering in your life. For athletes, like if you want to be in the NFL, no pain, no gain. You got to hit the weight room. You may hate working out. Jack LaLanne reportedly hated working out, and he's the king of workout artists but no pain, no gain. Think like a monk. Carry your cross willingly. St. Thomas of Kempis embraces these sacrifices in life. St. Therese, the little flower, embraces these sacrifices as a, an opportunity to walk with Christ. And then, you know what comes with age and experience? The understanding that bad feelings come and go. Circumstances in our life are constantly changing. So think like a senior citizen. Think like an old man and an old woman. Recognize that so much that affects our happiness is just changeable circumstances, like the weather. But meaning and purpose, it's about our past. It's about our willingness to bear the cross in the present for our hopes for the future. So this has been Father John Arnold in another episode of Oral Valley Catholic. If you liked it, Give me a like button. Take care. Bye-bye.